my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. One of the most important events that takes place on the first Easter Sunday isn't narrated within any of the four Gospels. It takes place in between verse 18, which we looked at last week, and verse 19, the first verse of today's scripture. Last Sunday, on Easter Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene encounters the risen Lord, and Jesus commissions her to go and tell the other 11 disciples the good news of the resurrection. John, as we saw last week, he already believes in the resurrection based on the evidence of the empty tomb. But it's clear from today's scripture that at least 10 of the 11 disciples do not believe Mary's testimony. So do you get the picture? Jesus sent Mary to them. She witnessed to them and they didn't believe her. This sermon is mostly about a lack of belief or doubt. First, the problem of doubt. Second, the solution to doubt. And third, what do we do on the other side of doubt? In other words, if we no longer doubt, but we genuinely believe, what do we do now? I'm going to spend most of this sermon talking about point number one. And just a little bit of time on the other two, which means as I'm talking about point number one, I don't want any of you looking at your watch and thinking, Brent better get on with it. He's got two more points to cover. So first, the problem of doubt. And on this first point, I must confess that I have changed my mind um, from previous years when I have preached this scripture. You see, in previous years when I've preached this text, I have felt far more sympathetic toward these 11 doubting, or should say 10 doubting disciples than I feel today. See, unlike in previous years, it now strikes me as borderline insane that these disciples still don't believe in the resurrection. I mean, really, after, after the empty tomb, after even Mary's witness, not to mention everything that they experienced of Jesus before his death. Like, how many miracles do they need to see before they believe in Jesus, before they start to trust in his word, before they believe that he is telling them the truth? They've got the empty tomb. They've got the testimony of a, of a trusted friend. And they've got three years of experience with Jesus. Honestly, don't they have enough evidence already? Apparently not. They still doubt. And that just seems wrong to me. I'm not very sympathetic anymore. They should be ashamed of themselves. And the word doubt might be too weak of a word anyway. It's true that some English translations call it doubt, but our ESV gets, captures the, the literal sense of the Greek with the words that Jesus speaks to Thomas in verse 27 when he says, Do not disbelieve, but believe. Look, for the purposes of this sermon, I'm happy to call the disciples' experience doubt because that's what everybody calls it. But when you get right down to it, let's just call a spade a spade. Let's call it what it is. It is simply a lack of faith. They don't believe what Jesus said. 
They don't believe God's word, whether that's the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, or the word that Christ's very spirit breathed out, the word of Holy Scripture, which prophesied about Christ's life, death, and resurrection. They don't believe it. So I'm tempted to point to these stubborn, hard-hearted disciples and say, shame, shame. But you've probably heard what happens when you point an accusatory finger at someone, what you've got three fingers pointing back at you, right? Well, that's certainly true for me. How easily and how often do I fail to believe God's word? How easily and how often do I fail to trust that the Lord is telling me the truth? Even if I say all the right words, like, I'm an evangelical. I'm not one of those progressives. Like John Wesley, I believe in the infallibility of Scripture. I believe in the bodily resurrection. Even if I say those things, how often do my own actions betray those words I speak? How often does my belief in Christ's bodily resurrection fail to penetrate my thick skull and make its way down to my heart and actually lead to lasting change in my life? Do I imagine when I stand before Christ in final judgment that He will be impressed with the fact that I can recite all the right doctrines when those doctrines haven't sufficiently changed my life. After all, how many times could Jesus look at the way I live and say, do not disbelieve, but believe? How about you? See, one problem that we often have is that we think of faith as a one-time decision. We walk down an aisle during a, a tearful altar call. We receive Christ as our Lord and Savior after an eight-week confirmation class. We pray a sinner's prayer and get baptized. Faith in Christ is like a rite of passage, something we just check off the list, like getting a driver's license or graduating high school or going off to college or joining the military or getting married, and I'm sorry. I have known preachers and evangelists who will tell me something like this. That person got saved many years ago when I shared the gospel with them, and they're referring to something that exclusively took place in the past. He got saved. And I'm like, that's all well and good, and I hope it's true, but I know that person today, and he's mean as a snake. So, so maybe so his life is indistinguishable from any old heathen's life. So maybe he did get saved. I hope he did. But is he still saved if he ever was? Don't get me wrong. You've got to get started in the Christian life. You've got to start somewhere. You've got to get converted. You've got to make a conscious decision to follow Christ. You've got to be born again. And on this point, I'm afraid I disagree with many of my United Methodist clergy colleagues who think that becoming a Christian happens through osmosis or something. You never have to really choose. So we Methodist pastors never ask anyone to choose Jesus. So yes, we have to choose. That's necessary. And that decision may very well happen 
when we walk down an aisle or pray a sinner's prayer or go through confirmation. But Jesus says that if your life doesn't bear fruit of salvation, you're not saved. It doesn't matter whether you prayed a prayer on one occasion or responded to an altar call or recited words in the confirmation liturgy. If our lives don't produce fruit in keeping with repentance, Jesus will say to you or me on judgment day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And it, and if, and it won't do me any good to say, but I was an ordained elder in full connection in the United Methodist Church. <laughs> Jesus will not be impressed by this or any other worldly credential. So we need to examine our lives, the Apostle Paul says, and see if our lives are bearing this fruit. If not, we may have a deadly serious spiritual problem. My point is this. Being a Christian, despite what we often think, is not simply a decision we make. And now, now that I've made this decision, I can just get on with the rest of my life. Indeed, if we truly have made that decision to receive Christ, which means repenting and believing and entrusting every part of our lives to Jesus Christ, it means seeking God's kingdom. It means living for His glory. It means repenting of ongoing sin and disbelief as we become aware of it. If we've done that, then the last thing we'll want to do is to simply Get on with our lives. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our life. Jesus Christ has become our greatest treasure, which means Christ is what we want more than we want anything else, which means we'd rather die than get on with our lives if getting on with our lives means living without Christ. Or to put it another way, we would rather have Jesus and die than to live another moment without him. Because after all, in Christ, death is no longer the worst thing that can happen to us. Jesus himself says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, and by that Jesus means God, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But for those of us who are in Christ, we don't have to fear death. Because we know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I went to a conference last week in Louisville. It was called Together for the Gospel, T4G. And it was attended by thousands upon thousands of pastors and some lay people. And one of the pastors who spoke told this crowd with stone-cold seriousness some of you who are listening to me right now will have to lay down your life because of your faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And he wasn't referring to us Americans, by the way. This was a global gathering. He went on to explain that some people in attendance today were from places like Russia and the Middle East and China and parts of Africa like Nigeria and Somalia and other parts of the world where simply being a faithful Christian and simply following the commands of Jesus and simply fulfilling the Great Commission will likely get themselves killed. And make no mistake, Christians are 
getting themselves killed these days. In larger numbers today than at any point in the history of the world, including the first few centuries of the church. Years ago, this prompted Pope Francis himself to wonder aloud whether the second coming would happen soon, because one sign of the second coming, according to scripture, is the increased persecution of Christians. But this speaker at the conference believed quite sincerely that some people in this crowd would die for Jesus. And a sinful, and I hope small, part of me thought, glad that's not me. I'm just so addicted to being comfortable. And I get so mad when things don't go my way. I get frustrated and impatient, and God forbid, excuse me, God forgive me. I even curse sometimes when I'm I'm inconvenienced in any way. I've said this before, but I worry that I wouldn't be willing to die for Jesus because I know my own heart. How could I be willing to die for Jesus when so much of the time I'm unwilling to risk dying of embarrassment for Jesus? For example, when God called me into ministry around 2002 or three, and after I made all my arrangements for attending seminary, and as I was about to leave a relatively prosperous engineering career and uproot my family and live in a parsonage with my family rent-free and somehow find a way to make ends meet so I could afford, I could get a master's degree at, a, at an expensive private college for the next three years. After I made all those arrangements, I put in my notice at work. Again, I was an engineer. I'm a proud rambling wreck from Georgia Tech. I was doing okay for myself, but, but, but I'll never forget the same day I put in my notice, word got around, and a man, a co-worker named Wayne, oh boy, Wayne, he talked to me. Now, forgive me, I double-checked the church directory to make sure that there were no Waynes on the church roll. (laughs) If there are, I apologize. As best I can tell or remember, I have never had a good experience with people named Wayne. (laughs) For whatever, it's me. It's not you, it's me. But so, so if your name is Wayne, Please introduce yourself to me because I believe you are wonderful. You are the exception. But every other Wayne. <laughs> and Wayne, he was kind of like a grown-up bully to me. He, he walked over to my cubicle when he heard the news about me quitting my career and going into ministry. And he just laughed. He laughed and laughed. He thought that was the craziest thing he'd ever heard, and he told me so. And you know what I wish I had done then? I wish I would have said, Wayne, let me tell you the reason I'm doing this. Uh, You see, the most important person in my life is Jesus Christ. He saved me from my sins. His blood bought my redemption. He gave me the gift of eternal life, and I owe him everything, and I love him, and I always want to obey him when he calls me to do something. That's what I wanted to say. 
Instead, God help me, I said nothing, and I blushed, and I felt ashamed. Why? Because at least a small part of me was worried, slightly worried, that Wayne was on to something. Maybe this is crazy. I mean, why can't I just be a normal Christian? Go to church every once in a while. Give about 1.8% of my income as a tithe in the offering plate. Not talk about Jesus to anyone because that's so embarrassing. And just blend in. And you know, not be weird about my faith. Because you see, in that moment, I doubted God's word. And I doubted Jesus when he said stark and sobering words like, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I wondered, are the stakes really so high? Are they as high as Jesus says? Are so many people really in danger of forfeiting their souls if they don't repent and believe in Jesus? Does heaven and hell really hang in the balance based on decisions that you and I make in this life? Has God put every single one of us in this place at this time in part to bear witness to the truth of the gospel so that what we do here in Tekoa, Georgia makes a difference for eternity. Is all of that really true? In that moment when my frenemy, Wayne, was laughing at me, I thought, maybe I should continue alongside Wayne, designing and writing code for industrial machines that put cans of Coca-Cola in 12-pack cartons. Because at least there's nothing weird about that. At least I can continue to be a completely inconspicuous Christian and be respectable and enjoy a good reputation and just sort of blend in. But what I failed to appreciate is that when you strive to live on that narrow way that leads to life which few find, rather than to live on that easy path on which most people travel that leads to destruction, you may at times seem weird to other people. Because what you're, what you're doing will be deeply countercultural, deeply out of step. It'll go against the grain of the way most people live. And as Christians, we're supposed to be okay with that. But more than anything, when you get right down to it, what I experienced with my frenemy Wayne was nothing other than doubt. I doubted God's word. And here's what I haven't emphasized in previous sermons on this text. While doubt is a normal and at times inescapable escapable part of living a Christian life. That doesn't mean that doubt is good or desirable. When you experience doubt in your life as a Christian, you need to take that as a sign that our gracious Lord wants to give you the grace to overcome this doubt, to heal you of this disbelief, to enable you to move beyond it. Because for your sake, you need to move beyond it. Living with doubt is a harmful way to live. And if you don't believe me, consider the disciples in today's scripture. Consider the consequences of their doubt. Consider, for example, verse 19. And these doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. 
If there were ever a fitting symbol of their doubt, it is these locked doors. What do these doors represent to these disciples? Fear, anxiety, despair, anger, bitterness, resentment, sadness, depression, self-pity. Each of these doubting disciples was likely thinking, we have wasted our lives following Jesus, at least the three plus years we've been following him. What am I going to do now? How will I be able to pick up the pieces of my life and move on? That's no way to live. And none of these 10 disciples needed to live this way if they only believed Jesus and God's word. Fear, anxiety, despair, anger, bitterness, resentment, sadness, depression, self-pity. How often do we experience those kinds of emotions? How much of our, how much of our personal suffering, not all of it, but how much of our personal suffering do we bring on ourselves because we fail to trust in God? We doubt his promises. We doubt that he's telling us the truth in his word. See, so that's the problem. That's point number one. And what's the solution? This brings us to point number two. I was listening to a preaching podcast that I listened to, and they were covering today's scripture. And the two preachers in this podcast, whom I deeply love and respect, they talked about the meaning of these locked doors. And they said in so many words that today's scripture teaches us that we don't have to do anything in order for Jesus to just show up and give us exactly what we need. That Jesus will walk through any locked door in our lives uh, that, that, that our own doubt or lack of faith puts in Jesus's path. Isn't that what Jesus does, after all, for the 11 disciples who were cowering behind a locked door in fear in today's scripture? Jesus just shows up. And I, and I almost agree with them. I mean, I love and respect these guys, and I'm this close to agreeing with them because, yes, Jesus does walk through those locked doors, and, yes, Jesus does show up. Hallelujah and amen to that. That's true. But you tell me, based on today's scripture, do the disciples do nothing? I mean, do they really do Nothing? I mean, it's true that Jesus showed up. But guess who also showed up? The disciples. In fact, one of the disciples didn't show up that night. And guess what happened to him? He had to wait and suffer things like fear, anxiety, despair, anger, bitterness, resentment, sadness, depression, self-pity for a whole nother week before Jesus came and gave him what he needed to overcome his doubts and fears. But even poor Thomas got exactly what he needed after, after he showed up for Jesus on that Sunday night a week after Easter. I'm not saying that Jesus will never show up for us if we don't show up for him. Of course he will, and he does sometimes. But you got to admit Good things happen in our lives when we show up first. Are we doing that? 
Are we showing up, for example, by placing God's word at the very center of our lives, reading it daily, reminding ourselves of God's promises contained therein, listening to God speak to us through it? Because look at verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This tells us that God's primary appointed means for believing, which, as I've said, means overcoming our own doubt and disbelief, the primary means for believing is reading and studying and immersing ourselves in God's written-down word, Holy Scripture, the Bible. And while it's true that John is referring specifically to the words of his gospel, if it's true for his gospel, I would and I can argue alongside 2,000 years of saints that went before me that it is true for the rest of Scripture as well. Don't have time right now, but uh, you just got to trust me on this. We need to do what the disciples do in today's Scripture and show up for Jesus. That means daily quiet times. That means prayer. That means worship with God's word at the very center. And maybe you feel like you don't have time for that. But if so, I invite you to consider the things in your life that you do show up for. Work, for instance. You, you don't miss work. That's important. Or school. You don't miss school. That's a priority. Also, we show up for our spouses, or we should, or our boyfriends or girlfriends if we have them. We show up for TV shows we binge on Hulu or Netflix. We show up for golf or pickleball or other leisure activities. We show up for gym or exercise, or at least we tell other people we do. We show up for college football, for heaven's sake, when that's in season. We show up for hunting and fishing whenever we can. We show up for social media probably many times an hour and if we're parents, we show up for nearly anything involving our kids. Don't I know it? I mean, sports, band, music, extracurricular activities. Don't misunderstand. I hope you know I'm not saying any of these things is bad in and of itself. Not at all. I'm saying we show up for the people and things we love and care about and enjoy. And believing in Jesus, by which I mean... We no longer doubt or disbelieve in him. Believing in Jesus means that showing up for him is, is, the most, is more important than showing up for any other good thing in our lives or our world. Do you believe that? So by all means, Jesus wants to walk through that locked door of fear, anxiety, despair, anger, bitterness, resentment, sadness, depression, and self-pity. The question is, when he does walk through that door, will he find us on the other side of it? That's point number two. That's the solution. Are we showing up for Jesus? Finally, point number three. What now? What do we do on the other side of doubt and disbelief? And I'm speaking from experience here. The main thing we do after Jesus heals us of our doubt and disbelief is the exact same thing we see the disciples doing in verse 20. 
when it says they were glad when they saw the Lord. And, and what we see Thomas doing in verse 28, when overcome with joy, he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God, we enjoy our Lord Jesus. In fact, we enjoy him more than we enjoy anything else. One of the speakers at last week's conference was retired pastor John Piper. He is perhaps most famous for the following maxim or pithy saying. It's sort of his trademark. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us. Remember, we live for God's glory. God is most glorified for us in us when we are most satisfied in him. He repeated it again last week in his speech, and he said that he would put that as an epitaph on his headstone if he wasn't going to put a Bible verse on there instead. But I believe these words of Piper. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him because I believe that they are true to scripture. I believe we find our greatest satisfaction in life, not by pursuing the treasures we find in people or possessions or position or prosperity or power or popularity or any treasure this world has to offer, but in Christ alone. And I want, here's all I want, brothers and sisters and friends, all I want is for all of y'all to possess this same treasure, to experience it. It's not too late. If you still have life and breath, if your heart is still beating, it's not too late. And here's the way. Here's the way you experience it. Are you ready? Do not disbelieve, but believe. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Tacoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Tacoa First. We have live in-person worship every week, and we also have online worship. Please see tacoafirstumc.org for more information.